This is an ABC podcast. Wishful thinking of the Labor Party. A shameful and pathetic attempt. This government is a government of cronies and donors. What really happened at the Engadine McDonald's? Chaos, confusion, dysfunction. That is such a bubble question. I'm just going to leave that one in the bubble. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Fran Kelly from Insiders. And I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive. Fran, you grace us today on a Thursday, fresh from the glamorous and glitzy midwinter parliamentary ball, which was actually in spring. Weird, but it happens that way. How was it? Uh, Well, fresh is probably not the quite right word because these things run really late. And then, of course, who can get off the dance floor when Daryl Braithwaite is the band? Can you believe that? Did you you (laughs) dance to horses? You know, I'm a big dancer at the midwinter ball usually. Like, I've, you know, I've, I've really done the hard yards on the dance floor, but I couldn't bring myself to dance to Daryl, to be honest. I couldn't back in the 70s or whenever it was. That's the uh, way it's going to be, little darling. I left before the whole great hall sort of linked arms and belted out that chorus, but you can just see it in your mind's eye, can't you? It was a good night. It was a, it was very, uh, there was a lot of glamour this year. They really stepped up because lo- I haven't been for a couple of years. Last time I went, there was a lot of short frocks and there's, this time there was a few jumpsuits, a lot of very glamorous gowns. If we're going to go down the gown um, route and have a gown discussion, I actually think the Prime Minister's wife won the best Best Outfit Award because I do love a jumpsuit. I think people know this. I'm like, there's probably about 25 jumpsuits in my um, wardrobe. You do love a jumpsuit. I'm you mad a for jumpsuit. a jumpsuit. And she looked really fantastic in her jumpsuit. Was it a greeny colour? Anyway, I'm not usually this superficial, but I was like, that... That's a good outfit. Yeah, and I think Tanya Plibersek had a jumpsuit on too. She looked pretty good in hers. There was a lot of jumpsuits going on. Everyone looked great. You know what's kind of nice about this? It's at the end, um, coming towards the end of a, 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 a sitting week, a couple of pretty tough sitting weeks for, for both sides after the election. It's a wonder anyone from Labor could frock up and come out in public really still. They're feel, feeling so bruised, some of them. Um, and they enjoy the chance to just sort of get out of the business suit, get get off the blazers and and get frocked up for a minute. There is that sense. And in that way, it was a good night. Raised a lot of money, I think $340,000 for charities, which is fantastic. This was the 20th midwinter ball and all up, I think they're, they're close to $4.5 million now. Or nearly $5 million, I think, for charities. That's amazing. It was the first time that the Prime Minister and the opposition leader's speeches at this event were actually on the record. The rules have changed. I personally think it's a good thing because they were reported anyway. Everyone found a way, so why not? No, no I don't agree. But anyway. Yeah. I like it when we disagree, though. What's what's wrong with them being on the record? I mean, really? Well, there's something nice about the sense that it was just between us and therefore did we see them in a different way. I remember when Julia Gillard was PM, that was for a short moment, and, in fact, this was almost on the eve of her not being, I think, and... You know, she was hilariously funny and you just never got to see that side of her in public and she wouldn't have been that if it was on the record, I don't think. Bill Shorten last year was very, very funny, I'm told. You just sort of see them a bit differently. I think that's a good thing. Well, let's get a bit of a taste of the Prime Minister and Anthony Albanese speaking. What really happened at the Engadine McDonald's in 1997? (laughs) It will remain the mystery of the ages and donate like Gladys Liu is organising. Thanks very much. Have a great night. 
That was pretty funny, that last line of Anthony Albanese, when he said, talk like the security agencies are listening and donate like Gladys Liu is in the room. PM had a few good lines. His speech was really long. Well, he, he addressed have... the Engadine Mackers issue, saying well, he won't reveal. Yeah, well, that's true. And he was relieved about that, not to have to reveal. Do we need to go into that? Everyone's got that Everyone covered. just Google Engadine Google. Mackers. I'm not going into it. I have some self-respect. Yeah, that's right. It's it's kind of icky. Um, but there was a good line where he talked about the good thing about having all the journos in the room was makes it easier to get all your metadata at once. And then he said it also allows Carrie Kelly to run amok up in the Sky Studio while you're all down here. And that kind of is a pretty good visual. Uh, and he said Josh Frydenberg can't be on the phone to any of you. So there was, you know, a few good gags. So the week starts with Gladys Lou in focus again. This is the second week running. Of course, she's the embattled MP for Chisholm, Fran, Labor going pretty hard on this issue, but equally the government pushing back saying uh, that this has essentially xenophobic undertones, that because she's a Chinese Australian, that she's being put under sustained scrutiny that no one else would. Labor pushing and pushing for a parliamentary statement. And Penny Wong, for instance, pushing very hard, saying that there is no racial element here. And in fact, in an interview with me, she even said, well, you're asking me hard questions. Are you being racist? I thought that was actually quite a smart strategy for her to put it that way, that, you know, you can be asked hard questions and come from all sorts of different diverse backgrounds. And that isn't doesn't mean it's loaded with race. That's right. Penny Wong is very, very head up about this. And she and Matthias Cormann, in a sense, faced off in the Senate. Her Labour opponent was a member of the same organisation that Labour is now using for its disgraceful, unsubstantiated smear and dog whistle. Mr President, the member for Chisholm is a strong advocate for her constituents and a valued member of our team in this parliament. She has the government's full support. So that's Matthias Cormann. He was forced by the Senate to come and make a statement about Gladys Liu. As you can hear, he gave a statement of support, which is one thing that Labor has been clamouring for the government to do. He's done that, but within that speech, there were more allegations of accusations coming from the coalition of Labor dog-whistling around this whole issue. Yeah, but it felt like there this sort of waxed and waned, this issue, that, they were, that Labor tried to keep it on the agenda and then it would fall off the agenda, then other things would come on and... and it allowed the government really to bring up some other issues which ended up dominating. And these are policy issues. Now, let's go to one of them because I think it's really key. And that was this announcement on this big overhaul, potentially a parliamentary inquiry into the family law system. So this actually ended up being a very, very key debate this week in Parliament and I think a really important debate that we, we should have and we should have in, in a proper, robust, very, very careful way as well. And the Prime Minister made this announcement that we didn't see coming, really, Fran, on, on this big review. Well, that's true. I think this is less in the basket of government trying to switch the agenda as government needing to get Pauline Hanson in their cart. We know that Pauline Hanson has been calling this for this review of the family court for some years now, and the government um, hasn't quite given her what she's wanted. They've had different kind of reviews. We've just seen one from the Australian Law Reform Commission, but she wanted more and they've given it to her, and I think there is no doubt that the government did this because they are trying to get Pauline Hanson and her two votes in the Senate on board for future legislation. And the fact that, you know, they've made Pauline Hanson the co-chair of this inquiry into the family court has really, really 
angered people. And what's angered people even more is that since she was given that announcement, Pauline Hanson has come out and uh, here's, here's a little of her speaking on RN Breakfast, making absolutely no bones of her agenda. There are people out there who are nothing but liars and will use that in the court system. You can't defend these people and I will not defend them. When she's saying people, she's meaning women. In that interview, she was very clear. She was accusing women of making up domestic violent claims in order to get custody of their children. There's been an absolute uproar from people within the family law system, uh, former judges at the Family Court and the Family Circuit Court uh, and the Circuit Court of Australia and others. Rosie Batty has called on Labor and the Greens to block this inquiry. And um, and they tried to, sh- and they tried to. Uh, they voted against it, the Greens and Labor. And I thought that was a really key moment this week. I haven't seen something quite like that. Anthony Albanese stood up and said, we're not going to vote for this. We can't support an inquiry in which he has unilaterally, along with Pauline Hanson, done a deal. Bipartisanship in this parliament is about government and opposition. It's not about government and one nation. The reason that's unusual is it's, it's, you'd think it's just an inquiry. Why would Labor vote against an inquiry? He made it quite clear that it's not actually, uh, he's not opposed to inquiring about anything or inquiring about this area, although he did make the point that there have been quite a few inquiries. The point was the way that Pauline Hanson had been offered this deputy role on this committee when usually it should be this bipartisan approach that it's the mainstream parties that get together. And, Fran, I covered forensically every day, every submission, every part of the big 2006 review that the Howard government did, and it was very much Labor and the government, the Howard government at the time, together working on these reforms. Yes, that's right. And she's not just the deputy chair, she's the co-chair. Now, it's not always the case. The two major parties have those positions. But I think what's really angered some in Labor is Pauline Hanson giving that interview and making her agenda clear. And that's, as I say, what's upset people in the court. Because if some say, you know, sure, maybe there are a few women who do make things up and allegations of abuse about their partners, but there's it uh, doesn't happen as often as men denying that they are violent in the court. So there are issues, of course there are, but the clear issues within the family court are known. They are resourcing, they are money for more judges, they are money for more parenting courses, for more community contact centres. These kind of support systems need to be built in to the budget and it's not done and that's why we're having delays of two and a half to three years for people, which does cause some injustices, that is true. But this is all known. We don't need another inquiry for Pauline Hanson and some of the groups she's representing to grandstand and try and deflect and distract. So let's look at just some of the terms of reference because I think they're telling. Uh, the committee will be tasked with investigating evidential and legal standards and onuses of proof in relation to the granting of domestic violence orders and the appropriateness of family court powers to ensure parties in family law proceedings provide truthful and complete evidence. So this issue around domestic violence is actually embedded in mm. the committee's work, right? Well, it and must be. this is, though, this is going to be a difficult one for the government because the government has been actually, I think, quite strong on issues around domestic violence. The Prime Minister announced the big um, package, of course, and has said that, you know, he takes this very seriously. This is one message it's sending, but it has to be very careful about the way it proceeds. If women's groups, and they've said this, Fran, are not comfortable coming forward to this committee now because this is what they're citing, of uh, the role of Pauline Hanson or uh, her, the fact that they say she's prejudged women, 
then I think that actually hurts the inquiry's work. And that can be a massive problem because if you want to build genuine big reforms that have everyone on board, right, that take it away from the political space, that take it away from this binary of men, women, sort of, I don't know, some sort of gender war stuff. If you want to build, take that out and actually have children's interests first, which every system should have at its centre. This is about children, not about power and parents. This is about mm. kids. That if you want to do that, you need all people to be participating equally and welcome to the committee. So if that does become an issue, I think it does actually affect the committee's work. I don't know if we're going to... That's what we're hearing at this stage in terms of women's reluctance. We'll have to wait and see what happens later. Will they get involved? What will their requirements be? Will they raise issues around Pauline Hanson's involvement when it starts doing its work? Because it hasn't started. But I think those things are really live issues for them. Yeah, and we'll have to see, I suppose, how all the members of this committee conduct themselves within it. I mean, that's going to be key. I'm excited to say that Greg Jennett is back. Thanks so much for having me back, feeling fresh as a daisy too. Greg, I've got to say, um, the PM, he was at the parliamentary ball last night, but he's on plane on Shark One already, heading off to Washington. He's got a big couple of weeks ahead of him, hasn't he? Wasting no time at all, Fran. This is a bit of a maiden voyage for Shark One. He's got, what did he say, 19 or 20 uh, journalists 19? in the back of the plane, hauling them all the way across the Pacific and then pretty much on arrival straight into this state a visit with all bells and whistles thrown on by Donald Trump. It's funny, isn't it? Because everyone perceived that there was this warmth that, let's face it, Malcolm Turnbull had to work pretty hard on to develop his rapport with, with Donald Trump. But uh, Scott Morrison's taken it to a new level. There's a dynamic there that takes a little while to try and work out. I think it's something about that underdog, isn't it? I think Michael Fully Love said it talking on RM Breakfast. And I thought he put it well. He said, well, he likes conservatives, mm. Donald Trump. He likes people who've come from behind to win, like he did, mm. and like Scott Morrison did. And he likes people who like him. Yeah. I thought that pretty well summed it up. Should make for a bang-up party, really. I think they'll have a great time there in D.C. And then it's off to Chicago for the uh, Vizzy Box Factory opening and then finally down to uh, New York City for the UN General Assembly. So it's it's a, it's a an important Though trip. he's not making an appearance at the UN Climate Change meeting and I'm not even sure we were invited, actually, were we? Well, you no, know, Maurice Payne will be there representing Australia, the foreign minister. Yeah, but other leaders are there. There's a yeah. lot of leaders there. Yeah. yeah. but but I, so, I think that's the thing, isn't it? Um, leaders at these weeks, if if they go along to some of these gatherings, it's instantly imbued with an authority that, that their delegates or their ministers um, don't necessarily bring. So there's certainly been some criticism of that. Now, there have been drone attacks on two oil facilities in Saudi Arabia that have slightly contributed to a rise in tensions in the Middle East region. I wonder, though, Will that complicate the situation for Scott Morrison? We talk about this big state visit, hanging out with Donald Trump. I mean, how will he manage that situation and any potential requests that may perhaps ask us to do a little more than just our very limited contribution? Yeah, I reckon that's an ever-present possibility, PK. And you'd have to think also that the Australian delegation, the Prime Minister and his team, will have 
war game, some what if scenarios here. That is, <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I mean, what if you were heading in towards the White House and that was the moment that Donald Trump decided to tell the world uh, the Pentagon has just done X in um, against Iran or, or in the Gulf region. So anything, literally anything, could happen in that part of the world. And with Donald Trump's sort of snap decision making, that's on true. Things. I mean, what I'm hearing is that our government comes in pretty determined. The PM uh, pretty determined not to expand the offering there in that coalition in the Straits of Hormuz. Mm-hmm. But the point is, I suppose, if it blows up, and the suggestion is that's the last thing Saudi Arabia wants because they've already seen what Iran can do to them, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, but if it does and things are unpredictable, then the fact is we will be there with our ship and our plane. And does that make Australians a target? Not just there, but elsewhere. We're already seeing some sort of Iranian hostage diplomacy right. going on. Does this the fact that we have signed up to this small coalition put us in the sites. It doesn't inoculate us from further requests to do more. Now, no. what we but could we practically... say no. Yeah, we could say no, but he's going to Washington to emphasise ad nauseum the erstwhile nature of this alliance, uh, the enduring century of partnership and mateship on the battlefields of the world. So it's going to be hard if the word was put on you to come up with yeah. more. Now, I think there are limits to what Australia can actually provide beyond what they've already committed. Um, but oh, there well, are... I know. I think we could provide more than one plane for a month and one ship yeah. if, we, if pushed, but, yeah, but there um, we don't of, want to. No, there are risks plenty, and we've already taken some. I mean, the hostages, we were up to three Australians already. Uh, we entered into this commitment with the ADF assets in the Strait of Hormuz, knowing that they had already been taken, opportunistically it, it seems. So none of the decisions that have been taken so far about the ADF are going to help the plight of those hostages. No, they haven't resulted in those hostages no. being taken, but... You've got to think they're not going to help the plot. It doesn't make life easier, no way. But it is, it is worth just for a moment, like, just focusing on the historic nature of this visit. I mean, Scott Morrison is getting the kind of treatment that oh, I think we haven't seen a Prime Minister get since John Howard, right? That would be true, yeah, because of the, yes, all the extra things that are being put on around at the dinner. Yeah, it is at a degree higher than anything uh, Malcolm Turnbull or Julia Gillard. How much, or of that, how much of that is optics on the Washington's part for bringing Australia in close as against China? You know, Donald Trump putting his arms around Australia in a sense saying we are allies, which we are of course, at a point where there are tensions, big trade tensions, and Australia sort of sits in the middle there. Is that our overblowing our importance? No, I think that's front and centre. I mean trade and the damage that their trade wars doing to us and our region's economy. And the power dynamics, of course, in our region, where the US is putting a bit of pressure on us to step up. Yeah, we're a small friend, but a friend that they need right now. Now, I don't know how Scott Morrison plays that, you know, does he uh, make his bargaining chip a, a little harder to obtain from Donald Trump, if anything is asked of us, but Donald Trump can do with a few friends right now. The UK is almost sort of leaderless, so mired is it in um, Brexit at the moment. Uh, he's had fallings out with France at various times, Germany. Uh, Australia's about as good as it gets in this part of the world as far as close and enduring alliance partners are concerned. So I think China absolutely... In Interference questions, Huawei questions, it's all there. Oh, there's plenty of questions, but the um, it's the optics, really, of having 
his arm around Australia at the White House for dinner. Right, and then we have to what somehow come away from this and again say, yeah, but we it's not exclusive. We can still have our economic partnership with mm. China. It gets ever harder, doesn't it? Oh, it's a tricky, tricky thing. Look, we're recording this Thursday morning, and today's a very big news day for the government because the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, is announcing right now, and of course there's going to be a lot of debate about all of this, that the federal budget is balanced for the first time in 11 years, he says. The update shows that the current year, $13.8 billion, um, it's better than forecast. And the deficit is now 690, I think, million. So it's nothing, is it? It's a rounding error. Yeah. yeah. It's a balanced budget. That <laughs> it's means. a balanced budget. And so but the government's... So close to surplus. Yeah, they are on the cusp. The yeah, yeah, but they're not. They're being careful still. Balanced budget they've delivered, they're saying. And, of course, this is worth having a moment to reflect on because this is kind of what... This is where they were going. This is what they wanted to deliver. This has been where the economic debate has been at. And Labor's been focusing on trying to say that they should, you know, stimulate, they should look at increasing New Start, or all these uh, levers they should be pushing. But here the government is standing up saying, well, you know, we're on the cusp of a surplus, but we've delivered a balanced budget. How do you read it, Greg? Yeah, expect to hear a lot more of that. And they will say that. That is their their buzz. They're not quite there yet, give, give or take the rounding error, as Fran calls it. But the question of whether you'd be prepared to slide back down deeper into the hole. So this will be 10 years, uh, 10 by the time we uh, actually get a a proper surplus, Uh, 10 years of deficits uh, will have accumulated. Would you be prepared to slide back into deficit to stave off recession? Now, it's a hypothetical question at the moment, but they've never ruled it out, have they? Well, they haven't ruled it out, but they've fended things off because mm. they're not keen to do it. I thought it was interesting this week, a number of economists coming out, a bit split really, on whether the government should pull all its eggs in the surplus basket and just you know, stand firm against new spending, new kind of stimulus, or try and head off a longer term, perhaps you know, slide by putting in stimulus now. So it's still a bit early in mm. this movement, I think, to see where the economy is growing. I think mostly economists are behind the government, standing firm, not putting out spending promises yet, waiting to see what happens perhaps in the next quarter. Yeah, exactly. I know they've said things like, well, that's what my EFOs are for, you know, the next budget update towards the end of the year. If we had to do certain things, we could. But you're right. I think their disposition is to keep ploughing headlong all the way into building surpluses as as they budgeted and campaigned on. Because not only is there an economic policy there, but there's also a political strategy Mm. because they become the government, the coalition is the government that delivers surpluses. Labor is the ones who promised and could never deliver. And that is such a smart, you know, that's such an easy line, isn't it, for a government if they're in surplus. Now, another big issue this week, if we can pivot a bit and change the conversation, is in relation to this ongoing saga around John Secker after weeks of disagreement and there's been ultimatums, there's been threats over the role of John Secker in the Victorian CFMEU. The man himself did a bunch of interviews this week. He spoke to RM Breakfast defending some comments he made about the senators having to wear the consequences of voting for the Coalition's Ensuring Integrity Bill. You could call any campaign a threat. I mean, is that what we've got to? I've been known to swear. It's it's, it's well documented. I do swear a lot and I use some language. Uh, I mean, I lead a construction union. I'm not in charge of the uh, uh, choir uh, or Sunday school. 
no Sunday school there. Uh, that'd be an interesting Sunday school. Uh, so, Greg, what's happening here is, though, that we've got crossbenchers Jackie Lambie and Rex Patrick who have spoken to the Australian Federal Police and said they feel basically that this guy's tried to intimidate them in relation to voting uh, against the Ensuring Integrity Bill or just generally the kind of language he's used about the way that they've spoken on this. They want to take it to the Privileges Committee as well. It's getting kind of ugly, isn't it? Yeah, I think the police have been entirely, as you would expect, PK, entirely non-committal about whether there's anything in this for them at all. And the Senate will almost certainly set up a Privileges Examination of this, be a bit of a contrarian here and suggest that as cases of thuggery and intimidation mm. against an elected member go, I don't think this is a particularly strong one. You know, ask John Howard or Peter Reith, uh, anyone who's taken on the union movement before with legislation, they've had union leaders thundering at them from flatbed trucks and other town hall stages in cities all Parliament around. House Parliament House's House front remember? doors broken, broken into. into. That was a um, you know, moment. I, the case, or I think Rex Patrick has got to make the case a little more convincingly. I think that's true, but it's also not the main game here. I mean, I, th- I thought... It what was interesting with John Sector in his comments this week, finally, you know, saying, look, this is just, you know, you've got to put it in context. Yeah, I'm swearing, but I'm in with shop stewards. Well, fair enough, I suppose. But the point is not just about the language. The point is about the charges against him uh, on a number of fronts. There's a series of things he's done in the past that have really been unsavoury. And the question, I think, is do you get to be the leader of a major institution, the head of a major institution in this country, if that's the way you behave. Mm. Simple as that. Yeah, sure, put it in context, but culturally you know, do we want people like that leading these institutions? And I think by and large, the AC2U down have said, no, we don't. It has. And he won't accept it. And that's the problem he's got, isn't it? Yes, there's context and yes, there's probably even dispensation and latitude. And he and his wife have made up. That's fine. That's terrific. That's great for their family. But that doesn't mean that he is the right person, fit and proper person to run a union. Yeah, and Anthony Albanese, the Labor Party, and as you say, the union movement itself has uh, has answered that question. They've got a pretty firm view that it is out of line with modern standards, even within the context of a construction union. Either way, he's just such a gift. He's an absolute gift with a big bow for the coalition as they try to prosecute the argument around the Ensuring Integrity Bill. They just have to use his name. He makes it so easy for them, <laughs> right? And this is what yeah. what's frustrating, I think, for the other parts of the union movement, that what can they do about it? They can't. They clearly haven't been able to get rid of him, have they? No, not much. And and just on that bill, if they're all sweating on it in the union movement, I think he's almost assured uh, the government that it gets its four of six votes needed. Mind you, Senate. I think he was going to get those central. I think the government was going to get those central anyway. alliance votes anyway. They, I mean, they're not going to do it unless they get some compromises on the bill. But the sounding seemed to be that the government is going to make those changes. So yeah. I think the the Jackie Lambie, John Setka sort of two-step. I think that's less imperative now for the passage of this bill. But, yeah, it, it hasn't helped. Mm. And and by and large, the whole union movement is sort of really being tarred with, with this brush and, and, that, and that's not good for it. And that's why Sally McManus and Michelle O'Neill and others have said you've got to go. Now, there's another story we just have to end on and we're only going to end on it very briefly because it's funny, not really funny, sort of sad funny, a major story that fizzled and then died a pretty quick death, actually, this week, although you never know, it's politics. 
a near leadership spill against New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian. So what, there were three MPs, they're upset with the way that the abortion decriminalisation debate has happened. Look, we're a federal politics podcast, I'm not going to get into all the details, but I tweeted like, how embarrassing, like how embarrassing. This is a spill that they tried and they gave up the next morning. Is this like the, the federal disease that nearly, like, like nearly went through, but then, I don't know, they found a vaccine by the morning and then, oh, they didn't get the federal disease. Like, what's going on here? Something like that. Yeah, the Canberra disease, the, the federal disease. At least you can say that on both sides of the house here, they're better at, uh, you know, getting through the bout of disease and coming out the other side than evidently the Liberal Party was. You know, I suppose the principle is that if you can't change the policy to your satisfaction, you have to change the leader, except we're not talking about policy here. This is a conscience matter. That's what made it even stranger to my eyes, not only that it was ham-fisted and that it wasn't followed through in any way whatsoever by the time they got to their meeting, but there is really no policy to be addressed here by changing the leader. It's purely conscience. And that's what makes it so tough for the Premier, Gladys Berejiklian. It is a conscience vote. She actually can't deliver uh, the numbers because this is a conscience vote, Um, but what it does reveal is how vulnerable she is, I think, within that party room. That's a New South Wales political story. But the fact that a Premier who really won surprisingly strongly just six months ago is already facing this kind of threat of a spill and, and an ongoing threat that these people might take their, their ball and go and sit on the cross bench, their bat and ball and go and sit on the cross bench, is really destabilising in the most powerful state in the in the Federation. I think it's ongoing stability there in New South Wales. Yeah, and mind-boggling to outsiders like us. So she just won an election for goodness sake. How could you be in that position already? Greg, thanks so much for joining us on The Party Room. It's always a lot of fun. And thanks for having me back. Okay, our first question is an audio question. It comes from Steph. Hi, Fran and PK. Big fan of the podcast. My question is, with the return of Jackie Lambie to the Senate, holding a crucial vote, I was thinking about the power of crossbenchers and the consequences, positive and negative, for how Parliament operates. My first knowledge of crossbenchers receiving lots of attention was in the 2010 election with Rob Oakeshott and Tony Windsor. Did this kind of situation happen in the past or is it a new development over this decade? Good question, Steph. Um, look, the, the Oakeshott-Windsor crossbench in the lower house, it was an unusual situation and the you know the Gillard government was not in majority. It needed to work with the crossbench, um, including the Greens, Adam Bant and Andrew Wilkie and those two. And in my view, it was the stronger for it. I think we got some really excellent policy development rather than a government of the day dominant and just br- bringing on its own policy and not brooking any change. But in the Senate, it's a, a well-worn path. We travel there with crossbench way back. Let's think about Brian Harradine. He was was really the master of horse trading in the Senate. He did some incredible deals for Tasmania in particular. He got the government, the Howard government at the time, to weaken all the services around abortion, for instance, because this was a particular issue for him. And he traded his vote very, very carefully on things like the WIC bill. There was quite a moment when John Howard was trying to get his GST up and Brian Harradine stood and said, I cannot support this, uh, when John Howard thought he would, and that meant John Howard had to go and work with the Democrats and change things. So he really used his vote incredibly well, particularly in support, another Tasmanian really, using his vote to get a lot of services for Tasmania. So it's Jackie Lambie, is, uh, she can look back at what Brian Harradine did and uh, there is a, a path for her to follow and I think that's what she's doing. That's exactly right. In the Senate, it's always better. 
been interesting. Crossbenchers have always been able to flex their muscle in the Senate. And this is what we're seeing at the moment, as you say, with Jackie Lambie. And I think she's one of the most interesting crossbenchers we've seen from some time because she's really quite unpredictable on issues as well. And you don't always know where she's going to come from. You know, if we're going to talk in a really binary way, left, right, she comes from both sides. <laughs> and that's why she's really interesting. Now, we have another question, and this one comes from Tristan. And Tristan asks, are there parameters and ground rules that are agreed to when you interview politicians? Are there certain questions that are blacklisted in order for some interviews to go ahead? And Tristan, I'm actually really glad you asked this question because I've noticed this is a constant theme on social media. Often I don't respond. I'm a big responder, but I don't because I'm like, oh, I can't even go there. It annoys me that people suggest at the end of some of my interviews that I've made some sort of deal. I don't. I don't do deals. And I'll give you an example. Sometimes, yeah, politicians will say, look, I don't really want to talk about Blair, right? And I'll say, oh, that's the big issue today. So I'm going to ask about that. If that means you can't do the interview, that's, that, you know, so be it. Yeah. And that's my approach, right? And some, you win some, you lose some. And what I mean by that is, oh, yeah, sometimes you'll have an empty chair, not literally, you'll try and fill it some other way, but you will maybe lose a guest. In this case, I'm not going to say who it was, but I didn't lose the guest actually, because most politicians get that and they go, all right. And you go, yeah, I'm, of course I'm going to ask. Can't tell you I'm not going to ask that because it's the story today. It's a big story. I'm not going to not but ask also, you that. I mean, I think it's also important for people to understand that mostly in my case anyway, my experience, PK, probably yours, I'm sure, politicians aren't trying to put limits on the interview. I mean, I rarely have a conversation where someone's suggesting I don't ask a question. And like you, I won't give a guarantee. I'll say, yeah, I'm not going to do the whole interview on that, but that is a story and we're going there. But generally, it's not even assumed that they have the right to put limits on an interview. Someone wants to come on and they will say to me, and I think this is absolutely reasonable, right, if you consider this parameters, they will say, oh, but can, you will ask about my portfolio area, won't exactly. you? Exactly. That's what now, I mean. Yeah. And actually, I don't know, like, I actually think they have a right to say that because they're the minister for insert thing. If you're not going to ask any questions about their portfolio areas, I kind of get why they feel, they'd feel a bit miffed, right? So I'll say, yeah, of course we are, but actually, you know, insert Gladys Lou issue, right? That's yeah. been big. So I now have to go down that road, as you know, because it's a really big story. And the smart ones, the majority, in fact, overwhelmingly will go, yeah, I get it. The other thing I will admit that gets asked is, oh, but how long? Duration is something. I think people, I really believe in transparency. So I'll say, oh, look, I'm working to an eight to a 10 minute interview, but you know what? Sometimes I can't be trusted. I'll go over. You always do. All right, that's it for the podcast. Goodbye, everybody. Until next episode. This week has been intense, intense because of the sort of double sitting week, Fran. We are like smashed. And of course, they can see you, Fran. I'm giving you a plug for your other thing on Insiders on on Sunday. Oh, I'm here. I'm loving you. Get on that couch, get your cup of tea. And if you can't get on the couch, put it in your ears. It's on news radio. You never have to miss it. You can listen to this podcast anytime you want. You can tweet us questions, email them at thepartyroom at abc.net.au. Rate, review, subscribe. You know the drill. See you, PK. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.